0: This is nice, a dinner with your closest friends. The food is good, and the mood is better. This is how life should always be. Someone throws out a joke, and you chime in. Or you try to. I guess no one heard you. Don't worry. Just try again. Nothing. Not a sound. You push, and you strain, but nothing comes out. You can't talk. Why can't you talk? Why hasn't anyone noticed? You try to scream, but there's nothing. Just silence. You have to keep quiet. I'm your host, Harper Hunt, and this is Cursed Knowledge. of speech is kind of a big deal. I know, understatement of the century. But it's true. Free speech is considered one of the most important elements of a working democracy. It's not just about protecting billionaires who want to be an asshole on social media. It's actually there to protect people who want to speak out against injustice, to expose the truth, even when the truth is hard to hear. And there are so many ways to speak up, With social media and the internet, it is easier than ever to raise your voice and join the conversation. Through text, video, and personal conversation, there's always a way to spread your message and use your voice to help shape the world. But as we see more opportunities to speak out, we also see more ways people try to keep us quiet. Now, maybe it's just your mom shooting you that look. Maybe it's an NDA. Maybe it's a complex web of censorship laws approved by the Supreme Court. What matters is how you respond to the pressure to stay silent. Do you give in? Do you stand your ground? Do you look for a loophole? If you couldn't guess, we're going to look at the third option. How can you obey the letter of the law, but not the spirit? And we're going back in history for this one, because one of the best examples of thwarting censorship through loopholes Comes from Golden Age Hollywood, the age of big studios and bigger stars. It was also the age of censorship. There were some very strict guidelines that dictated what could and could not be shown on screen. And there was drama. Well, of course there was drama. It's Hollywood after all. But I mean behind the scenes drama, that most of Hollywood would rather everyone forget. You see, the way censorship laws of the 1930s were written and enforced, major studios couldn't make anti-Nazi films without potentially destroying their company. Yeah, you heard me right. Before Pearl Harbor, American censorship actively punished studios for condemning the Nazis. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you'll step this way and follow me down the rabbit hole, have I got a story for you. Censorship and Hollywood go hand in hand. As long as we've been making movies, we've also been trying to restrict them. But there was a big shift towards pro-censorship in 1915, when the Supreme Court ruled that free speech protections did not extend to motion pictures. With that ruling, individual states and cities began creating censorship boards that would have to approve any film that wanted to be shown there. This ruling was applauded by the people who believed that Hollywood was a den of sin corrupting innocent youths. If you wanted to control what your kids saw at the local cinema, this was the way to do it. But let's be real, it wasn't about morality. The censorship boards were really about commercial interests. States and cities with censorship boards charged studios an additional evaluation fee, with no guarantee that the film would even be approved for public showing. This fee was pocketed by the censorship boards and the city or state, This new reality created a twofold problem for Hollywood. One, that the fees cut significantly into overall profits. And two, that so far the boards had demonstrated no predictable pattern of approval. Now, change in Hollywood did not come overnight. Film studios were desperate to prevent individual states and cities from creating their own censorship boards and to assure the federal government that they did not need to interfere. Their solution was to create their own censorship rules. And so the Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America, MPPDA, was created. And William Hayes was the man chosen to lead this new organization. Hayes first tried to impose his brand of censorship on Hollywood through an informal list known as the Don'ts and Be Careful's. This innocuous-looking list quickly became the reigning moral authority in Hollywood. It detailed 11 subjects that could never appear in films, as well as 25 subjects that could appear in films but needed to be handled delicately. Among the don'ts, you'll find titles or scenes which willfully ridicule law enforcement, illegal trafficking of drugs, and any form of profanity. The Be Careful's had standouts like The Use of Firearms, Sympathy for Criminals, and Men and Women in Bed Together. I really wish Hayes was around to watch Breaking Bad or Narcos. There are two others on that list that I want you to pay special attention to. The don't, forbidding willful offense to any nation, race, or creed. And the be careful, that warns studios against including international relations. Avoid picturizing in an unfavorable light another country's religion, history, institutions, Prominent people and citizenry. Clearly, Hayes and the MPPDA did not want films entering international relations and creating films that would criticize other countries. But at the end of the day, the don'ts and be carefuls weren't widely circulated, and they had no enforcement. They were more like guidelines than actual rules. When it became clear the list was too soft to affect any real change in Hollywood, Hayes sent out to create a new, more specific code for Hollywood films that studios would have to follow. So in 1930, the MPPDA released the official production code, which became better known as the Hayes Code. The content and restrictions remained largely the same, but there were two major changes to enforcement. The first was that there would now be a strict review process for all films before production began. In the past, all reviews for censorship were done after a film was completed, after all expenditures were made artistically and financially, and they were more of an afterthought. Now, Hollywood was entering a new era, one in which censorship came first. The second change was with distribution. If a film didn't have the stamp of approval from the MPPTA, it couldn't be shown in first-run theaters. Think of it like releasing a movie that cannot be shown at AMC or Bowtie Cinemas. No one would be able to see the film even if they wanted to, and the studios would ensure that they made no money. If you're still here with me, uh, wow, hi, I really thought I'd have lost you by now. I know that was a fair bit of setup and explanation, but for summarizing nearly 30 years of history, I think I did okay. And now we can get to the good part. Remember when I mentioned the part of the code that forbade willful offense to any nation, race, or creed? Right. Good. Just checking. And everybody remember the time period we're in? 1930s? Okay. Perfect. And you're not hearing this wrong. The Hays Code forbade studios from releasing films that insulted another country and their prominent leaders. So as Nazi Germany grew in power and began to take over Europe, Hollywood couldn't make any anti-Nazi films. As the production code was finalized, Warner Brothers was in the middle of creating Captured, a film set in a German prison camp in World War I. As the film was getting ready for distribution, Warner Brothers agreed to show it to George Geisling the man Hitler had tasked with supervising German portrayal in America. When the screening took place, it was the first time that Geisling was invited to give his official opinion on an American film. As the film ran, it became abundantly clear that Geisling had serious issues with it. Throughout the film, British soldiers were treated inhumanely by brutal German officers, and Geisling demanded that these scenes, as well as several others, be cut from the film, In fact, there was very little throughout the film that Geisling did not take issue with. Two months later, the film was boldly released in American theaters without any of Geisling's suggested cuts. So Geisling immediately told Warner Brothers that he would be invoking Article 15. Article 15 was new legislation from Germany with the sole purpose of preventing Hollywood from making anti-Nazi films. Obviously, the German state had no authority over what American businesses did, So they used economic pressure and exercised the authority they possessed over the German film industry, including imports. They could ban films and even entire studios from the country. Accordingly, Article 15 stated that any studio that produced or distributed anti-Nazi films anywhere in the world would be banned from Germany. The studio would just receive a warning, given by Geisling, and they were told that if they persisted, the article would be invoked. This threat was not one the studio could ignore. Germany had been a profitable market for Warner Brothers, and the studio hoped that it would continue to be so, especially with their blockbuster musical 42nd Street slated for release later that year and projected to be a huge success abroad. Ultimately, Warner Brothers made the changes Geisling demanded, and the film was successfully released in Germany. But Warner Brothers wasn't happy, and by 1934, they had stopped doing all business in Germany. And Warner Brothers wasn't the only major studio to give in to German demands. Other power players like MGM, Paramount, and RKO continued doing business in Germany and gave in to censorship. MGM had even acquired the rights to Sinclair Lewis's book, It Can't Happen Here, and predicted that the film would be a smash hit. The studio had plans to feature their biggest stars, and show Lewis's view of how fascism could gain power in America and what American life under a fascist dictatorship would look like. But the project was ultimately shelved after the censorship office told them that the content was so inflammatory it would almost certainly be rejected. So MGM reconsidered. Sinclair Lewis was furious with this news and angrily reported to the press, apparently, it can happen here. Hollywood studios were more concerned with making money making a statement. The threat of lost profits kept them quiet. Well, most of them. Once Warner Brothers pulled out of Germany, they said, fuck this, and began looking for loopholes to the production code. And they found a big one. Films that closely depicted historical people and events were able to more openly criticize political parties and leaders, or at least portray them as the clear antagonists since these films were based on real-world activities, it was very difficult for the censors to significantly change the scripts without running into accusations that they were trying to rewrite history. So as long as Warner Brothers could prove that the film was based on a true story, they could do whatever they wanted. They quickly exploited this loophole, and while not creating films that attacked the Nazis directly, they did show historical events in which Germany or other fascist groups were widely agreed to have been the antagonists. Their first big success was a story of American fascism called Black Legion. And I will give you $10 right now if you've actually heard of this movie before. Which is honestly a shame, because it's really good, and it stars a then up-and-coming Humphrey Bogart. The film tells the story of a real-life splinter group of the KKK that appeared in Detroit in 1936. Bogart's character is initially supportive of the group, as it makes him feel empowered after he lost his job, but his actions alienate his family and lead to the death of his best friend, culminating in a dramatic speech where he denounces the Legion. The characters and events are all fictional, but the Black Legion did exist, and gave enough historical credibility for the film to pass through censors, truly paving the way for all future Lifetime movies. Black Legion was a huge success both critically and financially, and the message wasn't lost on anyone. A Motion Picture Daily review wrote, While the foreword makes it very clear that what follows is based on no actual incidents, this will deceive no one who looks, and, we hope, millions will, for the good it has a chance of doing. And Warner Brothers didn't stop there. This was a time when most Americans viewed the Nazis and fascism as a European problem. The government was claiming neutrality and sticking their head in the sand. If the average person knew what was going on, odds are they didn't care. So Warner Brothers stepped up to make them care. In 1939, Black Legion was selected by the Progressive Education Association to serve as an educational tool for high schools and colleges. Warner Brothers would loan the film to various schools across the country along with a study guide. And the production code had no authority over a study guide. So subtlety was fired out of the window via a cannon. The guide focused on several discussion questions that encouraged participants to, among other things, define an American, discuss the role of a scapegoat, and debate the belief that there are mental and personality traits associated to particular races. In the event that these questions were, somehow, too subtle for readers, follow-up questions asked readers to compare Hitler's use of anti-Semitism with the anti-foreigner appeal of the Black Legion. To what end does Hitler arouse anti-Semitism, drawing direct comparisons between the Black Legion and Hitler's actions in Europe? Warner Brothers was not playing around. And they didn't just include discussion questions. The pamphlet also addressed the dangers of fascist ideology in many other ways. It began by detailing the history of American immigration and emphasizing the fact that America was built by and for immigrants of all kinds. After the discussion questions and a brief history, the pamphlet dedicated four pages to images of the Black Legion, the KKK, and silver shirts side by side. Much like how films use images to bypass language barriers, the pamphlet was doing something similar by presenting these three groups as the same. If a reader understands the dangers of the Black Legion and the KKK, they must also recognize the danger of the silver shirts and fascism. Pages 19 and 20 list every fascist organization that was active in the U.S. at the time. And if, by the time they reached the end, a reader was still uncertain The pamphlet had a four-page bibliography to prove that the facts it referenced were true and verifiable, and to encourage readers to continue their own research. And Warner Brothers didn't stop with one movie. After a few more barely-veiled anti-fascist films, they finally took the plunge and created the first American film that showed and named Nazis specifically as a threat to America. Produced in 1939, Confessions of a Nazi Spy was based on the true story of the Rumrich Nazi spy case in the ensuing trial. This trial took place in fall of 1938 and revealed to the world the existence of a Nazi spy ring in New York City. The FBI later identified this as their first major international spy case, so it was kind of a big deal. It was a massive scandal, and everyone was talking about it. Warner Brothers saw a golden opportunity and began a race against the clock to capitalize on the public interest, while also making sure to do enough research to maintain their, oh, it's just a history movie, facade. Cameras began rolling almost immediately. But of course, there was opposition. Geisling wanted it shut down. He wrote to the head of the censorship department entreating him to kindly see to it that this matter will not result in difficulties. This letter was forwarded to Jack Warner with an additional warning to be careful. To no one's surprise, Jack Warner did not give a single fuck. Security was increased and production continued. For a time, the studio seriously considered releasing the film without any credits to protect the identity of anyone involved. But in the end, the credits rolled at the end of the film. Jack Warner told the New York Times, I consider this picture our greatest contribution, and we shall produce it regardless of the consequences, regardless of the threats that have been pouring in on us, regardless of the pressure that has been brought against our organization by certain forces, even within the industry, which have an interest in seeing this picture abandoned. After the U.S. entered World War II following Pearl Harbor, the rules dictating the portrayal of foreign governments and countries no longer applied to Nazi Germany. There was no more ambiguity about relations with Germany and the other axis' power. Germany, Japan, and Italy were now hostile forces, and films depicting them as the enemy were not only allowed, but demanded by American audiences. Film studios that had once tried to curry favor with Germany now rushed to create films depicting them as the undisputed antagonists of the world warner brothers continued to show everyone how it was done and released casablanca nowadays the nazis are the ultimate bad guys in real life and in film it only takes a few bits of dialogue or iconography to create some very damning parallels that everybody understands the fact that hollywood was so tied up by censorship that they couldn't condemn the Nazis until after Pearl Harbor is something that they want you to forget. And that's exactly why you can't. We can't forget how censorship of free speech can have far-reaching consequences. And we can't forget how to resist it. Sometimes there aren't easily applicable loopholes to give us what we want. Sometimes it's a lot harder. But it's always important to stand up and use your voice even when everyone else is telling you to be quiet. I hope you learned something new. And remember, the real curse is sharing this information with your friends, family, and unsuspecting coworkers. If you enjoyed this production, like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, tell us some of your most cursed knowledge by joining us on the forums at EpsilonTheory.com. By the way, early forms of fake snow were actually just asbestos.